0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Random Melcher, and I'm very much looking forward to speaking with Dr. Jamie Martin about his book titled The Meddlers, Sovereignty, Empire, and the Birth of Global Economic Sovereign uh, Governance, apologies, out just now in 2022 from Harvard University Press. This is a really fascinating book that traces the origins of global economic governance, and the political conflicts around it, which are not insignificant, um, in the aftermath of World War One to help us understand um, some of the history and kind of how we got to some of the things that maybe we have today, like the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and the World Bank. Um, And thinking about, you know, these didn't just come out of nowhere, there was a whole bunch of debates and other institutions and things that were happening um, earlier before the end of World War Two, that maybe we aren't all familiar with and don't understand fully the debates. And yet, this book does a really fascinating job of tracing these various histories um, sort of in and outside of empire and in and outside of war and in and outside of financial crises and brings all these strands together to really give us a much better understanding um, of this period of history and of its significance in the moment and later on and really all the way up to the present day. So, Jamie, I'm really excited to welcome you to the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a bit and explaining
2: why you decided to write this book? Yeah. So I'm an assistant professor of history and social studies at Harvard University, and I'm a historian who focuses on uh, the history of international political economy, empire, and the era of the world wars primarily. So the origins of my book, The Meddlers, lie in a question that has long driven my interests and my research. Uh, When did people first think that it might be possible to actually try to govern the world economy? Now, the prospect of subjecting the almost infinite multiplicity of interactions that make up a world-spanning economic system is, of course, an astonishingly audacious and ambitious political project. And one that at the moment that I really began to work on this project in the early 2010s uh, felt more relevant than ever. So my question was, when did people begin to imagine that governing the world economy was possible? And how did this project evolve over time? Now, there's long been a general assumption that the origins of global economic governance can be dated to the Bretton Woods Conference of 1944, this kind of foundational moment um, in 20th century um, world economic and political history. So Bretton Woods, just as a brief recap, um, you know, is held um, in uh, New Hampshire, oddly enough, um, and uh, begins just after the Allied invasion of Europe during the Second World War. And it sees representatives of over 40 countries gathering to essentially recreate a world monetary system that had been destroyed by the Depression and by war, um, and to create two new powerful international institutions, the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, obviously both uh, of which still exist and still exercise quite extraordinary powers um, today. So the way this story about the coming of Bretton Woods is generally narrated is in terms of the arrival of a kind of New Deal inflected American internationalism onto the world stage at this moment at which the United States really kind of Um, uh, truly supersedes a declining British empire that until the interwar period had acted as a real kind of hegemon in the global economic system. Um, What I realized though, as I dove more deeply into this topic, was that Bretton Woods really can't be seen as the beginning of this story. I mean, there's a lot that's obviously true about these narratives about Bretton Woods. Bretton Woods was an enormously significant event Um, in 20th century global history and in the history of the modern world economy. But this would be kind of like akin to saying that the United Nations was the first international organization. It's just simply not the case. Um, Similarly, Bretton Woods was not the first time that states, private actors, and empires had attempted to create these new kinds of international bodies to effectively exercise some kind of collective control over the global capitalist system. Um, some kind of collective form of regulation and and, and rules and international laws and so on and so forth. This story really begins, um, I realized, um, during the First World War and as a result of the particular ways in which the war transformed empires and the globalized world economy that had emerged in the years before 1914. So that's really kind of how the project um, began and evolved Um, in my imagination.
1: Thank you for introducing um, us to that kind of process. I think it's really helpful situating sort of where the question comes from. um, And obviously put that way, after you've written the book and done all these things, it seems like a very straightforward question to be asking. Um, But of course, that's a distillation of so many years of thought and research um, that's culminated in this book that hopefully we can do a bit of a highlights tour of um, through the rest of the interview to pick out some of those main points. And so the obvious place to start is in these initial developments during the First World War. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about how these initial organizations and sort of methods of uh, international economic governance developed through the First World War.
2: Right. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I see the First World War as really this crucial moment of origins for these institutions that... You know later we would kind of you know come to obviously recognize as early forms of global economic governance. So why did these institutions arise during the First World War? Well the war obviously was an enormously complex, expensive and resource-intensive conflict. Uh, it was waged not only in Europe, um, but also in the Middle East, in East Asia, and Sub-Saharan Africa and across uh, the oceans. Um, and the the scale of this war required the mobilization of energy resources, soldiers, food, raw materials from all over the earth to feed into these vast industrial war economies of these uh, rival empires. And this obviously was no easy um, endeavor. And as the war carried on, the major allied powers, France, uh, Britain, Italy, and then the United States, began to realize that if they were going to win this war, um, uh they really needed to create new institutional means of cooperation. Um, and you see this happening both kind of directly in terms of uh, 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 military kind of um, strategic and logistical coordination, but also in terms um, of economic cooperation. Um, and the big problem here that needs to be addressed, um, certainly um, over 1917 and into 1918 is this increasingly um, a serious situation of shortages of shortages of energy resources, raw materials um, and ships. Um, so as the war kind of you know grinds on and gets into 1918, the Allied powers uh, 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 begin to really kind of speed up these efforts to create these new forms of economic cooperation. Um, and they establish these ambitious and extraordinarily complex means of sharing resources, technology, ships, food weapons um, uh, in order to wage their joint war effort against the Central powers and in an effect I argue in the book um, that this this through this process they end up creating the kind of originary institutions of global economic governance now it's important to recognize and to remember that these institutions were not international organizations you know uh, as we'd recognize them now they were more like ad hoc multilateral wartime command centers that brought together representatives from different states in order to make joint decisions over questions of shipping, food supply, and the provision of raw materials and armaments. But what they represented was something quite extraordinary. Uh, For the first time ever, high-level government officials were effectively operating something like a system of world economic planning for the sake of this shared Allied war effort. And it was no surprise that so many people around the world saw in this wartime system something radically new um, and something that might provide the foundations for the first real post war peacetime international economic organizations. Now, another important note is to contrast these wartime institutions with what had come before the First World War. In the 19th century, there had existed various different international organizations that had attempted to facilitate international cooperation concerning matters relevant to global exchange. They attempted to standardize measurements and statistics. They gathered data. They held all kinds of conferences concerning technical questions or what were called technical questions relevant to international commerce and relevant to this um, uh, globalizing world economic system. But what's important to remember is that these 19th century uh, bodies generally avoided getting involved in highly controversial questions concerning the most vital economic security and political matters um, faced by sovereign states. So for example, they generally avoided dealing with questions of tariffs, which were enormously fraught political issues that made and broke political parties in many countries, and of course were tightly intertwined with sensitive security questions. So what changes during the First World War is that you actually see government officials from the highest levels of the most powerful states in the world coming together to actually map out and execute these joint economic programs that touch the most vital economic matters um, that their countries face, really life and death questions. And again, as I argue, this moment should be seen as the real kind of birth point of powerful and effective institutions of global economic governance um, as we know it.
1: Mm. I think that's a pretty compelling case um, for a different starting point than the traditional Bretton Woods story. So thank you for introducing it to us. Um, in light of that, I was really interested to read in the book, um, kind of after that section, of course, the next question is, so, so okay, what happened after World War One, right? And this is when we see a lot of things happening in international governance much more broadly with the League of Nations, et cetera. Um, and yet, I think the point you made about kind of, hang on a second, these aren't the kinds of international organizations we think of now. They're multi-country sort of coalitions to get things done in a very sort of... Um, wartime sense of deadlines and not a lot of other options. So how does this develop or change when we come into the end of World War One and after World War One? To what extent do the systems set up during war end up translating into peace and in the League of Nations?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And as you mentioned, this wartime system created by the Allies, I mean, it's extraordinary, right? It's effectively a system of global economic planning that emerges out of the cauldron of war, out of the extraordinary resource demands and material demands of the war. But what's so, what was so fascinating for me to discover in my research was how these wartime institutions were seen by so many people, people of kind of every different possible political um, uh, orientation, as providing potential foundations for a peacetime international economic organization. Um, again, the fact that the allies had to exercise these kinds of joint controls over global shipping and the provision of food and raw materials really was taken to be a powerful demonstration of the possibility of international economic cooperation, of kind of bringing states together to try to achieve these collective aims in a way that had never before been done. Uh, before the first world war so again this idea of transforming the wartime system into a peacetime one was popular among a huge array of constituencies british conservatives french socialists american feminists and humanitarians and really technocratic internationalists of almost every imaginable political stripe now generally supporters of this idea imagined two broad uses for it Um, first this kind of Uh, transformed um, international economic organization building on the wartime bodies um, could be used to essentially repurpose the tools of wartime blockade for post-war use. So in other words, uh, you could kind of see this kind of ongoing institutionalization of a system for denying resources to enemy states, in this case, namely Germany, um, if they threaten the international order um, after the war, a kind of a system of economic sanctions, um, essentially. Um, and a, a recent book um, by my friend and colleague, uh, Nicholas Mulder, called The Economic Weapon, goes into uh, some of these details as well, as well. Basically, how you see sanctions emerging out of the First World War, out of these efforts to essentially internationalize um, the blockade. Um, the second use for this system was to facilitate uh, Uh, The second imagined use for the system was to facilitate the reconstruction of post-war states, essentially by guaranteeing them that if they needed them, they would always be able to get access to raw materials, food, and energy resources, um, namely coal, um, at uh, affordable prices. And this idea was very popular, particularly among socialists and worker groups um, and among uh, officials in uh, the two major allied states, most in need of post-war reconstruction, France and Italy. Um, Now, both among these government kind of, within these government circles and in these kind of civil society um, uh, and kind of social movement circles, um, there was a profound fear that the end of the war would bring severe unemployment as war economies had to abruptly downshift to peacetime conditions. So again, this was another possible function for these adapted wartime institutions after the war to guarantee a steady supply of raw materials so that factories could stay open, so that they could absorb demobilized soldiers, and overall, so that these post-war states could continue to ensure high levels of employment. The problem, though, with all of these visions was the idea, or the fact, that carrying over this wartime system into the peace would have required continued sacrifices um, among both states and private actors, uh, powerful companies, and in particularly, uh, and in particular, from the businesses that had had to forego profits and relinquish autonomy um, during the war years, right? It's one thing to kind of tell businesses, look for the sake of this collective national war effort. You're going to have to, you know, not turn as high of a profit as you're accustomed to. But the idea that you're going to continue to tell businesses that after the war is over um, uh, 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 proved to be impossible. So the U.S. government in particular, which emerges from the war in an incredible new position of global power, refuses to consider the perpetuation of any of these wartime arrangements into the peace. These arrangements that unduly um, would, const- or, you know, in U.S., Um, from the U.S. perspective that would unduly constrain U.S. freedom of action or that would put onerous burdens on U.S. businesses. Really nothing that in any way seriously threatens U.S. sovereignty would be tolerated. So what you see really by 1919 is that the most ambitious visions for adapting this wartime system of shipping and resource control to the peace, um, uh, these ambitious visions are failures. Now, again, as you mentioned, this doesn't mean that the story comes to an end. Effectively, what happens when the League of Nations was created in 1920 uh, as the world's first real intergovernmental peacetime um, uh, kind of powerful international institution, um, the League also created an economic and financial organization, really on the basis of these wartime allied economic institutions. Um, And this organization was designed and run by many of the very same people, particularly from Britain, um, uh, France and Italy, um, who had created and managed the wartime allied institutions. So you you see this very direct line coming out of these wartime allied bodies into some of these technical, um, uh, uh, technical kind of wings of the League of Nations. Now, the League was nowhere near as powerful as these wartime institutions. But still, it was very clearly built on the model that these systems of allied cooperation provided. Um, But again, unlike these wartime institutions, the League was supposed to be much less forceful, much less demanding, and ultimately much less intrusive into the domestic affairs of its member states.
1: I like how you say, was meant to be, because in fact, you talk about in the book um, how this ends up not quite being what ends up happening. And in fact, the League of Nations does get involved in the realm of finance, perhaps much more than um, had initially been thought. So I was wondering if you could explain to us how the League kind of ends up being so much more involved in the realm of international finance and, and why specifically in finance, of all the things the League could possibly end up moving into domestic spheres, why this one?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, and it happens in a rather unexpected way, actually. So again, as I mentioned, many people during the war imagined that the League's primary economic functions would be to control, to continue to control or exercise some kind of regulatory power over the global exchange of raw materials, foods, and ships. But this was something that the U.S. and the British opposed officially. Um, and quite vocally, as soon as the war was over. The League never ended up developing the same kind of incredible powers of resource and shipping control. But the League did gradually get involved in more or less three broad areas of economic governance, and some more effectively than others. So the first was trade. Um, and here the League really struggled, actually. Officially in the League's covenant, the kind of constitution of the uh, organization more or less, um, the only economic function that the league was given kind of formally was to encourage members to return to freer conditions of trade. And this was kind of a quite unclear ambiguous um, uh, uh, task, but it was clearly specified. But at the same time the league had actually been created specifically in ways that prevented it from dealing with questions of its members tariffs. So at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, where the League was being designed, U.S. representatives actually faced intense direct pressure from home, from Republican members of Congress, um, to ensure that the League never was able to develop the power to directly tell its members um, how to set their tariffs or how to deal with immigration policy. Now, after the League was created in 1920, it did try to get involved uh, uh, with questions of trade. Um, And the economic committee that's set up under the league, this is kind of its central task, is to try to, again, encourage member states to return to freer conditions of trade. But it never was really able to crack the hard problem of how it was going to do this, of how it was going to get members to lower their tariffs. Um, A second place where the league actually had much more success was in the relatively uncontroversial project of data gathering and economic research. It wasn't completely uncontroversial. Um, it was often quite hard to convince states to give up vital information about their domestic economies or their colonies. Um, But nonetheless, compared to trade, this was a much easier task. Um, And here the league was really carrying on pre-war traditions of technocratic internationalism um, that I mentioned a few moments ago, essentially getting states to provide it with data, trying to standardize data, um, and then actually also in a new twist, hiring uh, one um, economist after another to essentially use the League as a kind of a think tank for their research. Um, And again, this is something that the League ends up having extraordinary success with and really provides a kind of a launching pad um, for the careers of several economists who would even go on to win Nobel Prizes later. Um, But really, as you mentioned, the most significant and unexpected area in which the League of Nations was able to develop quite significant economic powers was in the realm of finance. And the way that it does so um, is by, in the early 1920s, essentially facilitating a series of loans to member states that were undergoing severe economic and financial instability, particularly Austria, Hungary, Greece, and Bulgaria. Um, And these bailouts were similar to a kind of IMF conditional loan from much later. They essentially involved the League insisting to these members in receipt of assistance that they had to undertake controversial and quite painful domestic policies, slashing public spending, firing huge numbers of government employees, removing central banks from government control, um, and so on and so forth. Really quite similar policies, again, um, to what the IMF would later um, make the conditions of its assistance in the late 20th century. Now there are a few reasons why the league, which failed to become powerful in the realm of trade, did manage to do so in the realm of finance. Um, I think there's three primary reasons why. First, financial instability, much more so than trade, posed potentially major strategic implications to some of the league's most powerful member states. So from the vantage point of Britain or France, a string of essentially failed states, states that had collapsed, by dint of their extreme financial instability um, throughout Central and Eastern Europe and the Balkans, simply threatened um, the potential of an outbreak of a new war or uh, at least the collapse of the entire peace settlement. I mean, the war itself had begun um, in the Balkans, right? So the idea that if a country like say Albania kind of experienced a complete financial meltdown, would this lead other states to compete over gobbling up its territory? Um, lead to invasions and lead to a kind of security breakdown. So it meant that there were real stakes to trying to bail out um, these states that were experiencing extreme financial instability. A second reason is because this kind of muscular financial governance, it wasn't going to be applied universally. In fact, it was only going to be brought to a, a small number of states. And these tended to be the defeated central powers and their successor states. So Austria, again, Hungary, um, Bulgaria. And there was a broad assumption at the time that these defeated states, states on the losing side of the war, could be treated differently from the Allies. These states didn't have the same kind of status, power, or even full sovereignty that the Allied powers did. And this meant you could experiment with rescuing them from financial collapse, even if doing so involved demanding uh, quite painful concessions. Um, And a third and final reason um, I think that the League develops these powers in in finance was because there was a clear set of models um, that League officials could draw on um, from the years before the war. Uh, Bankers and the empires that protected their interest had long before the war demanded that sovereign borrowers in in parts of the world like North Africa or the Middle East or um, Asia relinquish control over domestic policy and assets in order to ensure that their debts were repaid. And in a strange kind of um, semi-colonial or informal um, uh, uh, imperial way, these the kinds of multinational debt commissions that are set up in places like the Ottoman Empire or Egypt offer a kind of a, a, a germ of a kind of international, a highly coercive, but nonetheless, a kind of international cooperation from before the war. So if you're looking out over the world in the 1920s from the vantage point of Geneva, you see that you actually have this model, this kind of foreign financial control that the League can kind of adapt and repurpose for Europe. The problem (laughs) that becomes apparent very quickly is that bringing these obviously semi-colonial pre-war methods of bondholder control to European states like Austria was going to be enormously politically controversial um, because it threatened to subvert well-established kind of assumptions about civilization and hierarchy um, um, in the global order. According to these assumptions, you know, one key thing that set European states like Austria apart from non-European states like China or, or Egypt say, was that the economic sovereignty of these European states unlike a state like China, was supposed to be sacrosanct. And and the issue um, that becomes um, apparent to League officials very quickly is that if they make bailout loans to states like Austria um, that use these semi-colonial methods, they're going to generate enormous political resistance or they run the risk of generating enormous political resistance. And this is precisely what happens. Mm.
1: Very interesting. And I think we'll probably get to some of that political resistance um, in a moment or further on in the interview because it, it does um, sort of start from this idea of, oh, it's a very technical thing. This is what needs to happen. But as you show in the book and as you've just described us uh, to us, it might start off as seemingly a very sort of small technical niche thing, but there are some really much, much broader implications to that. Um, and so I'd love to kind of stay on a few points that you've mentioned and maybe bring them together a little bit. Um, because it is quite easy, given the dominant narrative and given the familiarity we have with um, our current version of these institutions, to kind of take all of this as sort of read. Well, this led to this, led to this, and that's what we have now. Um, but obviously, as you're already explaining to us, this time period in particular, there were a lot of things that were kind of up in the air and were a bit experimental and a bit unsure of what was happening. And there was also such an emphasis um, on raw materials and the coordination of it. Um, And all sorts of other things in a way that maybe we don't think of as quite so central to international economics and finance today. So I was wondering if you could maybe tell us about the nitrate of soda executive and why this was so remarkable.
2: Yeah, I love the Nitrate of Soda Executive because it's definitely something I don't think you'll find in any kind of textbook um, listing the history of international organizations or anything like that. Um, so it really is kind of one of the the the, uh, the ones that I enjoyed researching the most because it's quite quite odd ultimately. But the Nitrate of Soda Executive was one of these um, ultimately very powerful wartime economic institutions created by the Allied Powers um uh really in 1918 was when it um came online and the nitrate of soda executive had one aim to guarantee a steady supply of nitrates to the allied powers um, for the manufacture of weapons so i won't go into too much technical detail here and I'm certainly not a chemist, but essentially, sodium nitrate is a chemical compound that's vital for the industrial, or that was vital for the industrial manufacture of explosives. And at the time, you could either get nitrates by creating them synthetically in a lab, fixing them, um, as it were, from atmospheric nitrogen, though only the Germans and not the allies have really perfected this technique for creating synthetic nitrates during the war. So the other way that you get nitrates for making bombs and shells is that you mine them. Um, and nearly all of the world's natural nitrates at this time were mined in the deserts of Northern Chile. Um, and Chile was a neutral power during the war. So it raises this question for the allies of, you know, how are they going to guarantee in the middle of this war, a reliable supply of the raw material that was absolutely indispensable for their war effort that was indispensable for the manufacture of the shells um, that were being fired all along the Western Front. So really what they decide is that they need to create some institution that can effectively force um, the Chileans to sell nitrates to them um, at uh, lower than market prices. They're trying to forcefully hold down the price of nitrates. And And it ends up being quite effective. It allows the major allied powers to team up and essentially dictate to the Chileans the quantity and price of this absolutely vital raw material. And the reason I refer to this as quite a remarkable institution in the book is, is really because of the kind of power that it assumes. It essentially places the entire domestic Chilean economy around the mining and marketing of nitrates. And nitrates is Chile's chief export good, a good that the Chilean government relies heavily on, for government revenues, it places this entire domestic economy essentially into the hands of this brand new international institution. And this institution is able to exercise a highly effective, but also quite coercive form of monopsony power um, over Chile and that deeply alienates the Chileans. Um, But again, the creation of this kind of raw material executive shows the incredible power that the allies have amassed over the world economy during the war. And for those people who wanted to see these wartime institutions be transformed into peacetime ones, this nitrate executive provided an obvious model of an effective raw materials organization. One that ensured its members all had access to this vital raw material at affordable prices. Now again, the problem (laughs) was that um, uh, how were you going to get a resource rich an extremely powerful empire like the United States or Britain, um, how are you going to get them to make their natural resource wealth available to other states at non-market prices? From the British or US perspective, it was one thing to boss around a neutral South American country like Chile, which had not traditionally enjoyed full sovereignty over its natural resources, but it was quite a different matter to try to gain privileged access to the resources of powerful empires um, like Britain or the United States. And it was exactly this that the US government opposes so forcefully at war's end. The idea that other countries, particularly these rebuilding European countries, are going to be able to exercise this kind of monopsony power over the United States and over the vast resource wealth of the United States. Um, The Americans say, absolutely not. There's no way that we are going to allow ourselves to be treated in the way that we treated Chile during the war. This episode is brought
0: to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Very interesting. Um, I certainly as a reader found that to be not what I was expecting, really, um, and absolutely fascinating, not a thing that I had come across before. So um, I'm glad that you also found it interesting to research. Um, and thank you for sharing it with us. Um, I do want to say to listeners that obviously there's a lot more detail in the book than we're able really to get into here. Um, so if there are other raw materials that you might happen to be interested in, my guess is that the book probably covers it um, because there's rather a lot of raw materials that go into these debates and experiments about international finance, which I found a very interesting connection. Um I do want to move on, though, to perhaps some of the institutions or things that might be somewhat more familiar than the Nitrate of Soda executive is. Um, And this is, of course, when we start getting to really um, what I think makes sense as the first international bank. Mm. And I was wondering if you could tell us about kind of how we get this bank and what was significant about the specifics of its creation and what it was meant to do.
2: Yeah, so the Bank for International Settlements is um, this uh, is what you're referring to here. Um, and this uh, institution, which still exists to this day, uh, was created at the end of the 1920s um, for two, really two specific reasons. First, and I won't go into too much detail here, um, uh, the purpose of this new bank was to facilitate a resolution of problems around post-war German reparations, which Um, you know, as is well known, was an enormously destabilizing political problem in interwar Europe. But The second and ultimately more significant and lasting purpose for this international bank was to facilitate and formalize cooperation among the world's most powerful central banks. And what was so politically explosive and what I really get into um, in The Meddlers about the foundation of the Bank for International Settlements um, was the idea that this international bank was to be completely independent from governments and completely detached from the legislative and executive branches of governments. And this was um, a a vision for the bank that was shared um, among nearly all of its founders. So it's kind of a sine qua non for its creation that this new international financial institution had to be completely divorced um, from governments. Um, now, at this moment, um, there was kind of a fierce campaign being waged in many different countries to defend uh, the formal political independence of central banks. Um, although this independence, um, you know, how, how how much independence there was and what was the nature of this independence varied from country to country. Some central banks at this moment generally were able to operate. Um, without uh, too much anxiety about the day-to-day interference of politicians or treasuries. But other banks were put much more closely under the direct control of uh, governments. Um, But for this new international bank, nearly everyone could agree that it had to be able to operate completely detached from what we're seeing and what we're described as the political functions of governments. Now, of course, what was political, what counted as political, depended uh, on on who you asked. Um, but really, this kind of vision, almost this 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 movement around the need to depoliticize central banking, and then the need to create um, this formally depoliticized international bank, um, was quite powerful. Really, until the depression, and the depression, in many ways, causes this ideal of central bank independence to lose some of its luster. Um, And the Bank for International Settlements, while it's created over 1929, 1930, um, at first, because of the depression, does not assume the kind of powers that its supporters wanted and its detractors had feared. But again, the bank was created, it continues to exist, and perhaps even more significantly, I think, um, if seen over the long term, what you really see at this moment is the creation of this long-lasting and enormously powerful vision of creating a formally depoliticized form of global financial governance premised on a kind of, you know, the need for universal central bank independence. Um, This was a vision that came into existence then, kind of was heavily contested, kind of faded out of, um, you know, Um, faded off the scene for a few decades, and then would return later. And again, I think is really at the heart of uh, so much of global financial governance today.
1: So how much then is it reasonable to think of the Bank of International Settlements as a model for the IMF?
2: Well, it's tricky. Um, In certain ways, the Bank for International Settlements provided an obvious model for the International Monetary Fund. I mean, both of these bodies were uh, designed to potentially perform functions of international financial governance although you know importantly different ones um, but you know if you ask contemporaries at the time you know what would an international monetary fund look like you know one obvious model they would have and that they often drew on was the BIS but the bank for international settlements was also crucially different right it was a formally private institution made up of central banks that you know, declared themselves to be independent from government agencies. Um, they weren't always as independent as these central bankers made themselves out to be. Um, but this ideal of uh, being detached formally from governments was really at the heart of the BIS. The IMF, by contrast, was formally an intergovernmental organization. Right, it counts governments as its members, and it deals with financial functions. You know that um, kind of arise directly out of um, the uh, financial activities of governments, not just of private banks and theoretically non-governmental central banks. And this was actually one of the reasons why so many people involved in the foundation of the BIS kind of later came out of the woodwork actually to oppose the IMF because they assumed that an international financial institution that involved governments um, would be a failure. Um, An intergovernmental financial institution they thought would waste its money on political projects, on strategic issues, on a kind of political patronage, um, instead of being this kind of pure and unsullied banking institution as they imagined it. Um, By contrast, people involved in the foundation of the IMF were also quite skeptical of the BIS and really wanted to do something new, in part, Um, As I mentioned, this was because the whole idea of central bank independence had lost quite a bit of luster during the Depression, and also because the BIS itself um, had come to be directly implicated in the strategic aims of Nazi Germany. Um, Despite its official protestations that it was a purely non-political institution, um, this was really impossible to believe by the 1940s. And in fact, there was um, quite a lot of effort uh, put into Actually, destroying um, the bank, Um, and and a lot of people assumed that the bank would not actually survive the war, Um, but it did. And as I mentioned, it continues to exist to this day. Hmm.
1: Not something I think many of us were aware of. So very helpful and very interesting to see how all these different sorts of things—you know—which ones last and what, which things impact other things, and how kind of they all go together, and very much giving us a sense um, of experiment of a little bit maybe of chaos, um, certainly of kind of trying a lot of different things and learning about kind of what happens when this is attempted or how this goes. Um, And so I want to kind of move on from the Bank of International Settlements, but stay in this area of sort of experimentation and trying new things in this idea of international governance. Um, And in fact, think about the League of Nations a bit. Um, You you mentioned obviously that the League ended up doing a lot of things that were not particularly expected. We've already spoken about their role in finance um, in terms of bailouts. Um, But you also talk about the League's involvement in economic development as being another kind of, in some ways, a key starting point in the thing that we are obviously familiar with today. So I was wondering if you could tell us about um, the League's involvement in economic development, especially in Greece and how that ended up being such a massive project for the League and what the consequences were?
2: Yeah. So um, it's a it's a great question. I mean, I think generally we think of the origins of international development as we know it through institutions like the World Bank as beginning um, really in the late 1940s under the Truman administration and then taking off uh, in the Cold War um, and, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, continuing in ways that um, are broadly familiar to us um, to this day, um, you know, other scholars have also tried to, to, to backdate this story to say, actually, we need to look for the origins of development and older practices of European colonial empire. Um, and I think both of these stories, you know, broadly speaking, you know, they're, they're compatible. And um, what I try to add into the mix here is to look at this particular context of interwar international institutions um, attempting to, exactly as you put it, experiment um, with this idea of channeling loans to the economic development of a member state. And I really think that this begins actually, again, somewhere perhaps unexpected, but in interwar Greece. So let me just quickly give a little bit of context on this because I think it will hopefully make this point um, a little bit more clear for your listeners. Um, The kind of important uh, context here is that after the First World War, Greece fights a short but disastrous war um, with Turkey that ends in 1922. Um, And in the wake of the war, um, the large Greek Orthodox population of Turkey um, begins fleeing in droves in a process that's formalized with a population exchange in 1923, and overall, there's more than a million um, Greek refugees. Uh, so sorry, Greek Orthodox refugees that leave Turkey um, and come into Greece. And now, this is you know, this is a very well-known story. This is foundational uh, to 20th century um, Greek um, history. And I'm not a Greek historian, uh, but for my purposes, what I focus on here is how this enormous refugee crisis poses um, uh, uh, really quite significant um, economic challenges to the post-war Greek state. And what happens is that in the early 1920s, the League steps in, again, to oversee a huge loan. Um, But unlike in somewhere like Austria or Hungary, this loan isn't designed first and foremost for financial stabilization. It doesn't involve the same kind of austerity um, or or kind of demands for central bank independence in the first instance. This would actually come later in Greece. Um, But in the early 1920s, this first League loan is designed actually to spur on a massive project of infrastructure building, of agricultural modernization, of the development of small scale manufacturing, of kind of house building, effectively this suite of developmental projects designed to settle these refugees into what at the time is described as productive work. Because it's these same refugees who over time are supposed to pay off the loan. Once they've kind of got their, you know, family farms up and running, for example, um, they're supposed to pay rent, kind of buy off in installments, these homes. And this money is then, you know, kind of, you know, through a complex series of events, essentially going to be then used to pay off investors in the United States and in Britain and elsewhere. People who have kind of, you know, invested um, uh, in this um, government debt now. Uh, As the price of this loan, the Greek government has to make this quite uh, a significant concession. They effectively have to allow all of the proceeds of this loan to be completely controlled by the League of Nations itself. Not one uh, drachma can be spent by the Greek state itself. And what happens is that you see this pulling the League further and further into Greek domestic affairs with these American and British officials. America obviously wasn't a formal member of the League, um, but you have Americans actually performing quite significant, um, kind of playing significant roles with the League through these projects. And this was certainly true in 1920s Greece. Um, So what you see is you see these British and American officials working for the League, kind of having to weigh in on the ground and some of the most sensitive and controversial economic matters concerning this huge new population of Greek citizens. Questions about taxation, about rent, even about eviction. Um, Questions about the ownership of livestock, about property, um, about rent. All of these kind of, you know, quite intimate questions. Um, And what I argue in the book is that this was quite an anomalous experiment in doing something very new, essentially using an international institution to facilitate international loans to build up the national economy of a member state. And the Greek case at the time was seen, certainly at the League, as being quite an odd, a kind of a one-off experiment that would not be easily um, replicated elsewhere. But I think what we see here is a kind of early prelude to the work of later international development bodies like the World Bank. Um, And we also see the potentially enormous political controversies that would come from development as you see these international bodies potentially getting quite deep. Um, into the domestic affairs and policies and politics and legal systems um, of sovereign member states um, that seek out this assistance.
1: Mm. Yeah, D- again, another one of those things that seems like, oh, this is a straightforward task. And then as it develops goes, oh, hang on a second. There's a lot of complexity here. And I think does sound quite familiar to much more recent um examples and projects and efforts around international development than we might expect from interwar Greece. So thank you for sharing that with us and kind of explaining uh, the significance and um, interest, really, of of that particular example. Um, And I do want to obviously ask you a bit about Bretton Woods. But before we get there, I'd love to ask you about another sort of radical um, aspect that maybe sounds a bit dry, but actually I found fascinating to read about. So I was wondering if you could tell us about the significance and unusual aspects, really, of the International TIN Agreement.
2: Yeah, this is another one like the, the nitrates executive that, you know, when you tell people you're writing a history of the International TIN Agreement, they raise their eyebrows and they they really have no idea what you're talking about. So, um, but again, it was one of the things that as the research, you know, uh, uh, went on, I got, you know, absolutely, completely fascinated with Um, So really, uh, the International Tin Agreement, I think of it as a kind of like an OPEC 1.0. So obviously today, we have this enormously powerful institution, OPEC, that essentially brings together a range of major oil producing states to get them to agree on targets for oil production, essentially in order to keep oil prices at a certain level. Now, people tend to describe OPEC as a cartel, but really what it is, is an intergovernmental organization made up of sovereign states. Um, uh, And in a way, it it really is a form of global economic governance in its own right. Um, It's kind of, you know, it's obviously doing something quite different from an institution like the World Bank or the IMF, um, but I think it really should be seen as a kind of intergovernmental economic cooperation. Um, Now, in the years before the world wars, as we've spoken about already, the kind of primary focus of the new international institutions, you know, concerns these conditional bailout loans, these issues of development. Um, the coordination of central banks, this kind of relatively unsuccessful effort as well to get states um, to lower their tariffs. Um, but what I argue in the book is that another um, crucial innovation of the interwar years is the creation of these early and kind of originary intergovernmental commodity organizations in the 1920s and particularly in the 1930s. Again, a kind of a prelude to an institution like OPEC from much later. And the first really successful and powerful such institution was created to deal with the you know rather unremarkable but nonetheless enormously important raw material of tin. Um, tin was used in a variety of um, industrial processes. it was used obviously to make cans for food storage. It was also used for the manufacture of automobiles. Um, it was also used for a variety of uh, military relevant technologies, particularly. For the manufacture of um, uh, military vehicles, so tin was an important um, raw material. It's not one, perhaps, that we think about too much, um, although of course we've got the Tin Man and the, and the Wizard of Oz. Um, but you know, it's it's over the production and exchange of tin that you see the creation of this first kind of intergovernmental commodity organization that actually is effective in achieving its aims. And it was created largely at the initiative of the British and Dutch empires in order to stabilize their enormously resource-rich Southeast Asian colonies of Malaya um, and the Dutch East Indies. Um, and kind of following shortly on the heels of this tin body, you will also see the creation of a quite similar um, arrangement used to govern rubber production. And then afterwards you see kind of one similar institution after another, um, dealing with a whole multiplicity of agricultural goods and raw materials. And again, what I argue here is that you see during the interwar period this kind of improvisational processes of institution building really on the basis of these imperial arrangements um, that have quite a long legacy um, uh, and really a legacy that, that does extend up till today.
1: Mm. I did find that one quite fascinating. I will admit just like the nitrate of soda executive. Um, maybe it's cause I wasn't expecting it, but also it was really quite interesting. And the idea of OPEC 101 uh, or 1.0 is like quite a useful thing to think about again, sort of taking things today, maybe a little bit for granted. Um, But I do obviously want to ask about Bretton Woods, because in addition to all of the radical things that you talk about in the book that we probably have never heard of, you do, of course, also talk about Bretton Woods. So I was wondering if you could tell us about um, these debates. And obviously, there's been a ton of work done on it before. So please don't feel like you have to summarize everything that's ever been said about Bretton Woods. Um, But I was particularly interested in your arguments around debates about sovereignty at Bretton Woods and kind of both what you outline of why people were upset about sovereignty, and then yet somehow Bretton Woods still goes ahead. It still gets ratified. So I was wondering if you could kind of outline for us what the debates were, but then also how they were
2: resolved. Yeah, so, so really after taking the reader through some of these unexpected contexts that you've mentioned, you know, tin mining in uh, Malaya or kind of the political economy of, of nitrates in Chile, the book actually ends up in a, in a more familiar place, right? The kind of the concluding chapter um, of the book, um, uh, you know, it ends up back at Bretton Woods. And as you mentioned, there have been so much work that's been done on the history of Bretton Woods, um, really largely focused on this narrative that I mentioned before about this so-called battle. There's one book actually called The the, the Battle of Bretton Woods, this kind of battle between the British Empire on the decline and the United States on the rise that culminates in this extraordinary agreement, Um, really one of the most kind of, you know, um, celebrated international agreements of all time. Now, in most of these stories, and also in the story that I tell, actually, um, you know, the, the, the creation of Bretton Woods is generally narrated through these two personalities, these two extraordinary economists, John Maynard Keynes representing the British and Harry Dexter White representing the Americans. Um, And and what you see through this quite fraught um, process of negotiation, um, this competition between two different visions for an international financial institution. At The same time Keynes and White do agree on the basic need to create a system for stabilizing currencies and allowing states to rejoin a system of multilateral exchange. They also agree that states should be more free than in the past to run domestic experiments with expansive macroeconomic policies and welfareism, kind of Keynesian and New Deal style policies. The idea is that states are no longer supposed to feel kind of, you know, under the gun, so to speak, from global market forces when they want to do something to protect their own citizens from capitalism's boom and bust cycles. Um, So there is broad agreement between these two sides. But ultimately, because the U.S. is so much more powerful than the U.K. at this point, the visions of White and the U.S. Treasury win the day. And the International Monetary Fund that is established is much closer to U.S. blueprints than to British. So, so far, you know, this is kind of, you know, the general way that these uh, negotiations are narrated. And, you know, this is basically um, accurate. Um, One major and unresolved question that I focus more on in my book um, than uh, uh, some of these other accounts do is about how this new international institution is going to deal with the sovereignty of its member states and particularly what kinds of powers this international fund would be able to develop over the domestic fiscal and monetary policies of its member states. So in effect, is this new IMF that's just being created going to be able to tell a member state that it has to balance its budget, for example, or constrain monetary policy if it wanted access to assistance from the IMF, if it wanted access to IMF resources? Now Keynes was really, really anxious during these negotiations that the IMF might be able to develop these powers. And he even rhetorically asked his US counterparts how they would feel if the IMF had it existed before kind of showed up and told Washington that it couldn't afford the New Deal, right? He said, you guys never would have allowed this. So why do you think we're going to allow this International Monetary Fund uh, to potentially tell us that we can't afford a post-war welfare state, right? So ultimately Keynes felt confident that he kind of uh, uh, encouraged his U.S. counterparts to agree with him, right? Um, To agree at least that no state was really ever going to allow the IMF to tell it how to run its domestic affairs. Um, But the question was left highly ambiguous um, at Bretton Woods. And even in the wake of the conference, some of the people who had been there um, still weren't sure whether the IMF might be able to intervene in sensitive domestic questions about government spending, uh, about central, uh, about monetary policy. Um, after the war, however, U.S. representatives and the IMF very quickly clarify that despite, um, you know, Keynes's efforts during the war, Keynes himself dies very quickly after the war ends, um, that they are going to insist that the IMF, in fact, can uh, make access to its resources conditional on the domestic, and fiscal, uh, the domestic fiscal and monetary policies of member states. And because the US government effectively wields veto power in the IMF, it really is able to exercise a great deal of influence over the, how the institution evolves after the war. So again, despite Keynes' best efforts, and despite the seeming agreement of his US counterparts during the war, the IMF is able very shortly um, after it opens its doors to make increasingly interventionist demands on the domestic policies of member states. Now, while Keynes had been terrified that this kind of interventionist IMF would tell post-war Britain how to manage its affairs, and while some of the kind of uh, 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 people who were most opposed to these powers in the IMF were representatives of Western European countries, it wasn't in Europe where these powers are really first deployed and developed. Um, instead, it's in uh, South American states like Chile. Um, uh, Bolivia and elsewhere, who over the 1950s see the uh, IMF increasingly tying its financial assistance to these quite painful conditions of domestic austerity um, and monetary restraint. Um, so, really, you know, again, despite this kind of seeming agreement during the war, the IMF begins almost immediately after the war to evolve into wielding similar powers like the League of Nations before it. And this, again, you know, I think has left really quite significant legacies down to this day.
1: Mm. So I'd love to ask you about those legacies. Um, What do you think are the lessons of this book for now, for the
2: 21st century? So I'm a historian, so I, I think I'm kind of naturally somewhat hesitant to say that there are obvious kind of lessons that you could pick out of a history book. However, um, there is an argument running through the book that I do think um, has you know, normative implications um, for how we think of the world economy today and how we understand the institutions that have been created um, to govern the world economy. And really one of the principal arguments of my book kind of through the thicket of all of these details about the world wars and the interwar period is that global economic governance as we know it emerged directly out of institutions and practices of empire, um, both formal and informal empire, um, from the 19th and early 20th centuries? There's a clear evolution um, of these international economic institutions out of earlier semi colonial arrangements, um, you know, before the First World War, up through the creation of the League of Nations in the 1920s, and then up through the evolution of the IMF. After the Second World War, um, and what's key for us today, I think, is to recognize how institutions like the IMF continue to wield powers that actually emerged in these quite uh, uh, in this quite different time and out of these older practices of empire. I think one thing that this does is that it helps to explain why these institutions um, are so you know often so unpopular today, and why their more interventionist techniques of conditional lending or structural adjustment you know generate such resistance. Um, Even, you know, in in a period of time over the last few years um, since the the COVID pandemic that is, you know, uh, seen and continues to see um, quite severe global financial distress, you've seen this real reluctance on the part of many states to turn directly to the IMF until, you know, in the case of somewhere like Sri Lanka or Pakistan, that they're undergoing, you know, um, 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 severe financial turmoil. So again, you know, one of the aims of my book is to suggest that we continue to live in a world shaped by these quite old and often highly coercive practices of global economic governance, a world in which not all states are in practice equally sovereign, a world in which creditors exercise extraordinary powers over the domestic affairs of debtors, and a world in which we still haven't developed a form of international cooperation that is suitable to the enormous challenges posed. Um, by the, you know, highly globalized and highly crisis-prone form of global capitalism we have today. Um, so, you know, ultimately, as a historian, one of my aims is to get people to hopefully think um, about, you know, how we've gotten to where we are now and how the imperfect, um, uh, often coercive, and still relatively ineffectual um, uh, form of global economic governance we have today um How, you know, where it came from and how we might begin to think um, anew about what its reform might involve and how we can kind of try to navigate our way out of some of these, um, you know, kind of lingering imperial legacies that, um, you know, I speak a lot about in the book.
1: Hmm. Well, thank you. I think um, obviously all historians, we never want to kind of necessarily address the present too much, but I think there are some very clear Um, normative implications um, throughout the book. And thank you for kind of summarizing them in such a useful way. Uh, Listeners can clearly tell, I think, that the book is useful historically, but also to understand, as you said, how we got to where we are. Um, So then really as my last question, and hopefully not the most difficult question I've thrown at you today, um, the book is obviously now complete. It's out. Listeners can read it. So is there anything that you are working on now or next that you'd like to share a little bit about with us?
2: Yeah. So my next book project uh, is returning to really focus centrally um, on the years of the First World War and their immediate aftermath and to offer a global economic history of the war and its settlement. Now, since the centennial of the war's outbreak, there has been really um, quite uh, an extraordinary um, flowering of uh, new global histories of the First World War focusing on you know, a variety of uh, different topics, on the soldiers um, um, who fought in the war from British and French um, colonial territories, from Senegal, from India, from Madagascar and elsewhere, on the legacies of the war in the Middle East, in East Asia and Southeast Asia, um, and so on and so forth. Really an exciting kind of you know, new wave of, of books on the war. Um, When it comes to the economics of the war, though, I think work is still often very focused on Europe and the United States, and on a set of questions that has animated the study of the war's economic aspects for really a long time, really since kind of the first books on the economics of the war began to appear in the 1920s, on questions about war finance, industrial mobilization, and the blockades, and again, largely told from the vantage point of the major European belligerents in the United States. So what I want to do in this new book project is instead to look at the enormous global economic turmoil unleashed by the war far outside its principal theaters of conflict in Europe and the Middle East, looking at how the war disrupted shipping, food production, banking, trade, um, and really daily life in so many different parts of the world, from Latin America to West Africa, um, Southeast Asia, and elsewhere. So ultimately, the aim of the book is to show Really, how the war became a profound globaliz- uh, a profound crisis for globalization, but not because it destroyed the world economy in any meaningful sense, or kind of, you know, pushed states into the embrace of autarky or something like this, but because the war led to a series of crises um, um, and profound experiences of hardship um, that were transmitted more widely than ever before across the systems of trade, shipping and finance that had emerged before the war's outbreak, really even down to the most local and even isolated rural areas on different sides of the earth. So that's the new book project. Um, It's at its beginning phases, but I have a few kind of um, pieces that are, um, have come out and that are coming out on the topic. And I'm really just, you know, so excited to get into the archives and to get to work on it as soon as possible.
1: It sounds like an absolutely fascinating project. Thank you for giving us a sneak peak of it and hopefully when the book is done you can come back and tell us all about it I would um, love to. amazing but in the meantime while you are diving into the archives listeners can read the book that we've been discussing which again is titled the meddlers sovereignty empire and the birth of global economic governance just out in 2022 from harvard university press dr jamie martin thank you so much for being with us on the podcast
2: thanks so much for having me this was a lot of fun